Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, breaking rank. We have always had a strong number of people who feel uh, and who reflect the diversity of perspectives and views across the country. The parliamentary secretary to the foreign affairs minister is secretly recorded, caught questioning his government's response to the war in Gaza. How bad does this look for the Trudeau Liberals? We will speak with our political panel. Also. What's important to us is that we get a single payer model established. Two weeks left before that March 1st deadline is hope fading for a Liberal NDP Pharmacare deal. And falling approval numbers trailing badly in the polls. What can the Liberals do? We'll speak with David Coletto of Abacus Data. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. Rob Oliphant is the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and his job is to defend the Trudeau government's foreign policy in Parliament. But earlier this month, Oliphant was caught criticizing his government's policy by speaking out against Ottawa's handling of the war in Gaza. It was a private conversation recorded without Oliphant's knowledge, but it was shared with CBC News and made headlines today. Well, to talk about this, we're now joined by our political panel. Susan Smith is principal with the Blue Sky Strategy Group, Tim Powers, chair of Summa Strategies, and Anne McGrath, principal secretary to the NDP leader. Hello to the three of you. So here, let's begin with Rob Oliphant. Again, this was a conversation he had with a constituent, recorded without his knowledge, but according to the report in CBC, he talked about the government's decision to suspend funding from UNRWA. He also talked about uh, the belief that Israel has probably committed genocidal acts. We know that there's division already within the Liberal caucus over the handling of this war. How problematic is it for this government that Rob Oliphant was caught doing this? I feel sorry for Mr. Oliphant. Um, If you're having a private conversation with a constituent and you're you're speaking your mind, you don't expect that someone's going to record it and then give it to a news organization later, first of all. And I think he was speaking in his capacity as an MP. I think he was speaking from his heart and how he felt, not in his role as parliamentary secretary. He was not standing on the floor of the House of Commons. He's a, an ind- a smart individual who obviously holds his own opinions, as many members of parliament do. So I think it's a very unfortunate situation. He's been in the role for a long time. He's seen a lot on the ground. And I think he was just echoing some of the real struggle that many MPs across all parties are dealing with when it comes to this situation. Um, it's not ideal that someone who's a parliamentary secretary has a gets um, has somebody pull this kind of stunt on them. It's very unfortunate. But Mr. Oliphant is a good, he's a team player for the Liberals. He's a very smart man and he's an important person that is part of the Liberal team and he's allowed his own opinions just like all of the other caucus members are. That's it. I don't disagree with uh, Susan on the fact that, you know, it's disappointing you see people taping conversations. That said, 
Mr. Oliphant is smart, as, as Susan said. He's, he, he's a trained minister, as I recall, as well. So uh, I certainly know he's a man of passion and faith, but that doesn't mean he should be totally oblivious to the fact that if you don't know the person, you ought to be very cautious with what you say. All that aside, uh, Mr. Oliphant's character, which is not in question here, I think, look, it's just another story in another week when the Liberal government just can't find a way to get itself out of the headlines for something a minister said, something a parliamentary secretary said, painting the picture, which is just not helpful for the government of being disorganized, chaotic, you pick whatever term you want. So uh, it, 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 it doesn't help in, in that regard. The issue in and of itself, yes, speaks to a division that I, I think is probably better known in the Liberal Party than other parties. But I think right now it's being put in the lens of this government is adrift and not working the right way. And it's something they have to answer for and they probably prefer they didn't have to. Mm -hmm. And what's your take on this? Well, I think I agree with both. I mean, with both these guys, even though they're a little bit different. But, you know, I, I think that it is really unfortunate to have been taped without your knowledge and then have it, uh, you know, released to the media. I think that that's a, that's a horrible thing to happen. On the other hand, uh, he is experienced. He knows that these things can happen. It's not the first time something like this has happened in politics. Um, and so I, I think uh, you have to make the assumption that 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 what you're saying um, has to be broadcast worthy, not just, you know, you can't just do that, that kind of thing. So I think, uh, you know, in his role as an MP, if that's how strongly he feels, he does have to be clear about it. And, you know, the Liberal Party does have a lot of d divisions in it around, the, around this issue in particular. Um, and perhaps it serves them well in some ways because they get to appeal to every community. Um, I, I think, I, I wish they would be a little clearer about what they, where they stand on this, but uh, I think it's unfortunate that they have, you know, all of they have all of these different positions, and they're not able to clearly speak as the government. But he is the parliamentary secretary, the minister of foreign affairs, so it's pretty it's a pretty big deal, I would say, in that sense. Yeah, I, I'm going to pick up on that point, but I do want to play uh, for everyone here and for people at home uh, what we heard from the prime minister today, because he was asked about the report. Take a listen to uh, Justin Trudeau as he spoke earlier in Winnipeg. One of the strengths of the Liberal Party federally is that we have always had a strong number of people who feel uh, and who reflect the diversity of perspectives and views across the country. We have uh, a large number of Muslim MPs, we have a large number of Jewish MPs. Uh, and the kinds of conversations that go on within our party are not always easy, but they reflect that diversity of conversations happening across the country. So, and he, he basically is, is echoing what, what you said, uh, Susan. I didn't even Although, know he said that. Well, there we go. <laughs> but, but, I, but what uh, stood out for me as he answered that question is he did not express support for Mr. Oliphant. He did not say that we will get past this or, or anything of that matter. So will there be repercussions here? Can Mr. Oliphant, again, given the position that he holds, still have that job? Well, I actually took that differently, took his comments differently and his tone in particular. He didn't sound angry. He was saying something that he said before. And as I was watching that, I was thinking, wow, he didn't throw Rob Oliphant under the bus there. So that's my take on the prime minister's response to that. I think that was a very reasonable response from the prime minister. It's a very true response. We know that the Liberal caucus is very divided on this very complicated and very tragic issue. So I think, I think Mr. Oliphant will survive this. He may get his knuckles wrapped. He'll now learn 
never to trust anybody ever again on a conversation. How awful is that? Um, but I think they'll be able to get past this. Well, you could, that clip could have been the same clip he played after Ken McDonald went off on whether there should be a leadership review or not. Really, that's the standard defense. Look, I've seen it used by the conservatives. May have used it myself, Michael, that you have different <laughs> points of view. But you're usually saying that hoping to manage the, the, the political damage. And it's, it's not Rob Oliphant, it's the cascading things. I mean, uh, it's Stefan Gibeault yesterday and having to deal with roads or no roads and what's a good road and what's a bad road and the Which road, the you know, and the road to hell's today. paved with good intentions. Uh, but I don't know, uh, the Prime Minister would probably just like some good intentions from his, from his MPs these days. I, I don't know if he looked confident, uh, Susan, or if he just is so battered and so used to pushing that line because he's had to use it more often these days. Uh, Anne, what do you it's, make? It's the answer that you have to give if you're, in, yes. if you're in his position. He gave the answer that you have to give. I don't know if there will be consequences. I would, pr I would probably put money on the fact that if there are consequences, they won't be immediate. Uh, some time will pass, and then there will, might be some changes made. Okay. The uh, thing with Oliphant, too, is they, they have to be careful with Rob Oliphant because he is in a seat, and he, he himself is well-liked as a constituent MP. And if the polls are to be believed, you don't want to be trifling with some of these MPs who you will need to get re-elected, too. Yeah. And, of course, in Toronto as well, yeah. which the Liberals need to hold. So, of course, we're going to keep watching that. Uh, listen, I, I need to move to Pharmacare now because we're now about two weeks away from the March Looking 1st the deadline. I, you, the Look funny thing there. was... I I say, who should I be in the conversation <laughs> with? <laughs> How are negotiations going, Anne? Because to hear it from your leader, not well at all. Well, I'm, obviously, I'm not going to talk about details of the negotiations or anything like that. But I will say that uh, that it, it is a bit of a nice edge right now. I mean, it is not clear to me where we're going to end up. There, is, there are, as you said, there's only a couple of weeks left. There was an extension. The, the, this was the legislation was supposed to be in place by the end of December. It wasn't. Uh, we, we, there was a feeling at that time that we were fairly close, and so that we could have an extension to March 1st to get it done. Um, but it doesn't seem like it's moving very significantly at the moment. Uh, that said, anything can happen in the, you know, in, in the next few days. I think, uh, I think that the Liberals have to decide whether or not they want to continue with this or, or whether they want to walk away. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I will say when we listen to the, the health minister, Mark Holland, he, he, he talks about not so much a, a single uh, a single system, public system, single payer system, which the NDP is pushing very hard on, he he seems to be making the signal that so long as people who need the medication is covered, then pharmacare will be a success, which makes me wonder whether or not the Liberals are walking away from this deal to try to put, put about a different type of system, which, quite frankly, if the deal fell through, they could forward with their own pharmacare plan if they wanted to. So transparency, Michael, my firm does work for a uh, an organization in the benefits space, so just to put that out there. But in terms of your question, I think the Liberals are looking at the bottom line, and I think they're looking at what's practical and pragmatic based on realities versus ideologies on things. The reality, the reality is 73% of Canadians have some kind of coverage, whether it's through employers or others. There are people that don't have coverage. And so how do you close those gaps? What can we afford as a country? We've got dental care, we've got other things. So how do you get the medicine to people who, who don't have it, have no insurance whatsoever, without at the same time scaling back the benefits that you may have through your employer because a universal payer pharmacare system may end up with less on the table than what you already have 
through your employer system. So I think the gov I think the Liberals were working in good faith with the NDP. That's what I understand there to be. But they are um, uh, constrained by the realities of being in government, the realities of being looking at the purse strings and understanding what's realistic and doable for yeah. people. Yeah, it's really fascinating what they leak. Um, they're potentially going to end with no better, but according to, I think it's the star, they're talking about uh, providing uh, funding for birth control and diabetes. Birth control, by and large, uh, is used more by women, younger women. Where are the liberals uh, falling behind in the polls to the conservatives right now? There. So it's really fascinating some of the items that they're leaking. I suppose their strategy is to hope if they do walk away, they'll probably come back with something like that and can claim they were standing up for different cohorts of people who find uh, the cost of drugs difficult in those spaces. So, you know, I, I, good intentions maybe, I don't know, but they haven't lost their edge to try and point out political benefit to some of what they're considering. Yeah, you, you know, and you were, uh, instrumental in constructing this supply and confidence agreement. Uh, and I, I do wonder, the, this pushback on, on a public system, does that surprise you? Um, well, I think that it, it surprises me to some extent, yes, because uh, the, the agreement itself does not commit to any big, large amounts of money or anything like that, right? I mean, it is like sort of starting off with things like having the formulary of essential drugs by the end of the agreement. But the framework, the legislative framework is very important, and that is uh, intended to be public, single-payer, universal, and it is based on all of the experts and reports and commissions, including government's own, th this government's own report, that said that that is the most uh, pragmatic, effective, and cost-efficient way to have a pharmacare system. And it would actually, uh, yes, there would be some costs, there are also some savings. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, as we look at the timeline, it, it, for people who don't know, Parliament goes on break next week, and then we're back, essentially a five-day countdown when Parliament returns. Of course, talks don't have to end because of that. Uh, how confident are you that we're going to see some type of legislative framework? Oh, I think Anne's the one that can give yeah. you a better answer to that than I can. Well, that's why she's my phenomenon. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm going to end last. Uh, I think the Liberals have good intentions, but as I've said, they're the ones that have to decide are there billions and billions and billions of extra dollars in the fiscal framework to be able to deliver it? What is the framework that best helps Canadians who have nothing? So can can they reach agreement with brilliant negotiators like Anne at the table? I'm sure they'll be able to find some common ground. Um, it's a tight deadline. Yeah. Well, no, good intentions seems to be the theme of this program today. So as I said earlier, good intentions, they paved the road to hell. So I don't know if Anne's taking us to hell or heaven. She'll have to tell us. <laughs> I will say that Jagmeet Singh has said many times that we're not talking about billions and billions and billions of dollars. We are talking about the legislative framework and some beginning steps. Um, you know, if, if the, this had been done before Christmas, according to the timeline, we would have just probably been looking at the legislative framework. You know, pushing the, it back meant that, 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 that there had to be a little bit more on the table. So we are looking at some, uh, you know, getting some, some things started in, in this. But, but the idea of it being billions and billions and billions of dollars is, is not, has never been on the table for, for this budget. Okay, well, we continue to watch. Uh, gives us something to talk about when we get back. <laughs> but until then, uh, Susan, Tim, and Anne, thank you. I always appreciate the time. Thank you. Well, time now for a look at what happened in politics today. 
We begin in the United States, where a New York judge ruled Donald Trump's first criminal trial will begin next month, rejecting Trump's attempt to have his case thrown out. The former U.S. president is facing 34 criminal charges related to so-called hush money, payments he allegedly made to three individuals, including adult film star Stormy Daniels. Judge Juan Manuel Mercan says the trial will begin with jury selection on March the 25th, despite requests from Trump's legal team for a delay. The trial is expected to last six weeks. Canadian troops deployed with NATO in Latvia will soon have new air defense and anti-drone capabilities. The Defense Minister Bill Blair saying the government is acquiring nearly $275 million worth of new equipment on an urgent basis. Blair adds this is the first time since 2012 that the Canadian Armed Forces will have an air defense capability. Once operational, this air defense system will defend our troops against aerial threats, including fixed-wing aircraft, helicopters and drones, and it will strengthen the defense capability of the battle group as a whole. Our troops told us that they needed this equipment rapidly to give the changing security environment on NATO's eastern flank, and we expect that they'll have these tools in their hands later this year. We've designated all three procurements as urgent operational requirements. This is the first time that we've used this mechanism within our procurement legislation since the war in Afghanistan. This is defense procurement, procurement done differently, and it's one way that we are strengthening Canada's presence in Latvia. By 2026, we'll more than double our military presence and operation reassurance with up to 2,200 deployed personnel. And I would conclude by reiterating uh, that as a founding member of NATO, Canada steadfastly supports the principle of collective defense. And as we mark NATO's 75th anniversary, we are showing the world our capability, unity and resolve. The first systems are expected to be delivered later this year. Canada's Transportation Safety Board has concluded its investigation into a 2021 helicopter crash in Nunavut that killed three people. The TSB says poor weather conditions led to whiteouts, causing the pilot to make an unintentional descent, ultimately crashing the helicopter. In its report, the TSB makes four recommendations to Transport Canada, including providing better training for pilots and improved technology to help them deal with reduced visibility. Unfortunately, for more than 30 years, the TSB has been calling for the implementation of safety measures to mitigate the risks that persist in helicopter reduced visibility operations. And finally tonight, representatives from four of Canada's largest unions were on Parliament Hill today, joining the NDP to call on the government to end what they say are punitive and discriminatory employment insurance rules targeting new parents. Under the current system, people laid off prior, during or after parental leave lose their eligibility to collect regular EI. When they take their parental or maternity benefits, it uses up the hours that they have to apply for regular benefits. And that means that if a new parent loses their job after their maternity leave or in the lead up to their maternity leave, or if they're laid off while they're on a maternity or parental leave, it means that they can't access income assistance, effectively their employment insurance benefit uh, in the case of the layoff. 
The latest poll numbers from Abacus Data continue to paint a bleak picture for the Trudeau Liberals. Since the firm's last release, Conservative support is up 3%. And in terms of percentages, take a look at where things stand right now. Conservatives at 43%, Liberals at 24%, New Democrats at 18%, and the Bloc at 8 So for more, we're now joined by David Coletto, the founder, chair, and the CEO of Abacus Data. David, good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Good to see you, Michael. Thanks for having me. So we opened there with the national numbers, but really I want to focus in on the regions where the Trudeau government essentially has built their victories in the past elections, because there the party's also trailing. Uh, in Atlantic Canada, for example, Conservatives lead by 18%. In Ontario, Conservatives lead by 14%. Uh, let's start in those two regions specifically. What's being said about the Prime Minister and his party? Where, where does the dissatisfaction lie? Well, I think it's it's all around inflation and the cost of living. I think, you know, Atlantic Canada um, is best, I think, uh, it, it, it shows up really in some opposition to the carbon tax, which took effect, you know, last summer and has really been a, a political hot potato for the Liberals in that region. Um, in a region that, remember, in 2015, they won every single seat when they first were elected uh, today with these kind of numbers, you know, they'd be lucky to hold, you know, half a dozen. So it, it really does show... Um, the, the kind of uh, reaction that Atlantic Canadians have had. In Ontario, um, I think it's the same kind of forces. It's it's housing, it's the cost of living. Um, there's some concern about health care. But all in all, it's, it's um, you know, a shift away from the Liberals largely, um, I think reflective of both a desire for change and the economic and, and social context that's just making people a little grumpy these days, as the Prime Minister said a few weeks ago. So Atlantic Canada, uh, Ontario, not great for the Liberals, especially since they certainly have carried those two regions in the last uh, couple of votes or so. Let's talk about Quebec, because the Bloc Québécois, they lead by 8% right now. The Liberals and Tories are in a statistical tie. So I I'm wondering, who does that tie actually benefit more? Well, the Liberals still would benefit. They, they typically have a more efficient vote because their vote is, is much more concentrated, for example, around Montreal. So that kind of number would still give them more seats than the Conservatives. But I think it's an indication that um, you, I don't think they could take their support in Quebec for uh, granted either. Uh, that even in that region where the prime minister's from and where they think they, they've got this solid core of support, that that maybe the efforts that the Conservatives have made to, you know, chip away at the Bloc Québécois, link the Bloc with the Liberals is is is, is paying some dividends. Um, you know, even Francois Legault, who only a few months ago was, you know, un, untouchable, uh, is now trailing provincially. I think it shows that Quebecers, too, are responding to the same forces that the rest of the country are, and that are those that I talked about, the cost of living, um, and, and and other concerns around healthcare as well. Yeah, and beyond regions, you also recently uh, noted a decline in liberal support when it comes to younger Canadians. Why is that? Where is that support now going? Well, it's going to the Conservatives and the New Democrats are benefiting to some extent. I think it's it's one of the biggest part, the most interesting parts of the story is, you know, a few, if, if I told you, Michael, uh, a year ago, that the liberals were more popular among those over 60 than they are among those under 30, I would have, you should have said to me, David, go and do another survey. That that data makes no sense. But we have now seen consistently, not just our polls, but others showing the Liberals actually weakest among that youngest cohort. And I think it's it's related to to a few things. One is again housing. Uh, this is 
the group of Canadians who who are most feeling under pressure, whether it's because of rents increasing, whether it's that 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 dream of home ownership that feels farther away than ever, as well as um, in some ways uh, concerns around climate change not being acted upon by the Liberals. I mean, their 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 decision to carve out the carbon tax, while maybe politically helpful for them in Atlantic Canada. Um, was a signal to those who care deeply about this issue that maybe they aren't as principled on it as as they say. So I think it's it's a it's a real challenge for the liberals, um, and I think is is a is a demonstration of of just how sh- quickly and significantly the political environment has shifted under their feet. Okay, so so uh, trailing nationally, trailing in the regions where liberals need to be leading in in order to be reelected, uh, trailing amongst young voters. But d- despite all this, you also note that. Uh, with the Conservative lead, what we're not seeing right now is is this sense of polyevmania. What do you mean by that? What kind of opening, if any, does that present to the other political parties? Yeah, I mean, when we ask Canadians how they feel about Mr. Polyev, for example, um, he's doing okay. Um, he's got about equal numbers who say they have a positive and negative view of him, which is better than past Conservative leaders. Um, so you need to give him some credit. But I think most of the reason that the the conservatives are such so far ahead right now is much more about rejection of the liberals than an embrace of, of Mr. Polyev and the conservatives, which means that they still have work to do um, to to convince people that they're ready for government. Now that may not be they may not have to simply by being so unhappy with the liberals that might just push people into their arms. But I think they they can't become complacent and think that just because people want change that they aren't still going to evaluate whether the change alternatives, the options that are out there are acceptable. And and there's about one in three Canadians who say they want change, but aren't completely comfortable with the alternatives. Um, As I've said before, they're going to likely decide the next election and they're still watching carefully, maybe not paying deep attention to everything that's going on in Ottawa right now. But when the time comes, uh, Pierre Polyev needs to be ready and demonstrate he's ready for prime time. David Coletto, I always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Thanks, Michael. Well, as we end our program this Thursday, we wanted to introduce and welcome officially the newest member of CPAC's on-air team, journalist and reporter Omira Issa. Omira, hello. Hello, Michael. So obviously you and I know each other from a past life at another network, (laughs) (laughs) but here we are, uh, you an award-winning journalist joining CPAC. For people who who don't know you yet, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a bilingual Canadian. I am a journalist and uh, I was born in Morocco, raised in Niger and partly as well in Saskatchewan. And so for the past 10 years, I've been telling Canadian stories in both French and English. And so it's it's truly a privilege and pleasure to be here today. Well, it is very exciting to have you. And let's talk a little bit m- bit more about your mm-hmm. journalistic background. So so yes, Morocco, Niger, Saskatchewan, but professionally, you, you've been very busy. <laughs> yes, you might say so. Um, I, yes, I've, I've, I've worked in uh, uh, Saskatchewan, as, as we've said, Saskatoon, Regina. Uh, I have worked in Montreal, in Toronto, and in Ottawa earlier, and uh, I started out at Radio-Canada in Saskatchewan, and uh, and then since then I have uh, evolved in a lot of uh, 
uh, storytelling um, on Canadian politics, and here I am today, so it's really exciting. Yeah, and underline Canadian politics, but you because you are walking into the center of Canadian po political <laughs> coverage right. here. Uh, how are you feeling about this new chapter? You, you've been here now for a few weeks. Uh, mm -hmm. you, more and more people are going to see you on air, but mm -hmm. you've been reacquainting yourself with Ottawa. How are you feeling about this new chapter? I'm incredibly excited um, for what's next. Uh, it's been um, really, really refreshing to uh, go on Parliament Hill to uh, meet a lot of our newsmakers, a lot of our policymakers. Um, yeah, it's it's great. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Looking forward to telling um, Canadian federal politics stories and and provincial stories as well. So. Uh, it's a new chapter, it's a new beginning, it's a very exciting one. Well, I enjoyed sharing time with you on air in our past life. Yes. I'm looking forward to, <laughs> to uh, sharing more time with you here on CPAC. Omira, welcome and uh, looking forward to the future. Thank you so much, I appreciate it, good to see you. And you. And that is our program for this Thursday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching Primetime Politics. We'll be back tomorrow night, but up next, Esther Bejan avec l'Essentiel.